Turning your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. As we begin a new series this morning. And we'll read two verses this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. And it says there, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Let's, uh, let's bring this uh, message now to the Lord and uh, let's, let's commit it this time to him. Father, we, uh, we thank you once again for this morning service. Father, we just pray that you would be with us now as we seek to understand and know your will for our lives. And Father, to this end, Father, I seek to, uh, to preach the truth as you have given it to me. Father, may I preach it in love uh, and Father, with boldness. And Father, may it be done for the edifying of the saints that we might all come to a knowledge, Father, in the fullness of the stature of the Son of God in our own lives. We thank you once again for the indwelling of your spirit and we ask now for his direction and leading and understanding and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> During the Second World War, one of the most successful generals in Hitler's forces was a man called General Erwin Rommel. Most of you might have heard of this particular man. He was so successful in uh, desert tactics and the use of troops and tanks and, and, and blitzkriegs, that his success in North Africa was absolutely legendary. Uh, he was given the name the Desert Fox, so most of you might, might have heard of him. And it was left to a man called General George Patton to try to break this chain of success of this man. And during a particular battle in the north of Africa, Patton's troops and tanks were engaged in a successful counterattack on these German forces under Rommel. And Patton, who apparently was seldom um, at a loss for words, apparently he knew what to say, when to say it, um, was heard to shout in the middle of that battle, I've read your book, Rommel. I've read your book. And that he did. He had thoroughly read a textbook that Rommel had written about tactics in warfare. He understood, and the Rommel's book was called Infantry Attacks. So Patton had read it, studied it, understood it so well that he was able to anticipate what Rommel was going to do next and then to counterattack um, when he actually did make, or made those moves. So he planned his moves based on Rommel's book. Rommel's own book, you like that? I've decided to do a series on Satan. This has been playing around in my head for a while. And my purpose for this series is that we might understand his devices, his schemes. We might be able to recognise them and, and to overcome them. This is because we are in a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle is not getting lighter, it's not getting weaker, it's not going away. In fact, as the day draws near, it's, they're getting worse. And get, it's getting more ferocious. Satan hasn't authored any books. Not that I know of. But God has. And God has exposed our enemy's origin, his nature, and his tactics in that book. He's told us what to expect, how this, how this enemy thinks, and what his moves are like what tactics he's used in the past. Now, Satan is mentioned throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and all throughout its, um, its pages. While our primary call in life is not to focus on Satan, it's not. In fact, I think that people who spend too much time thinking about demons and, and Satan and all these types of things have a problem we're called to focus on Christ as our saviour and in his grace and his riches. We, nevertheless, we are to know the doctrine of Satan. We are to understand where he came from, who he is, and what he does and what his, what his uh, thoughts are. 
If we understand his character, if we understand his motives, his schemes, his devices, and the way he tempts and traps people and keeps them trapped, we will be better able to resist him, to pray more with knowledge, and to be able to stand firm in the faith. As the Apostle Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He is not... He doesn't sit still. He's always on the move. And our job is to be sober. That doesn't mean not to be drunk. That means to be completely alert, to be aware, know what's going on. And we need to be vigilant. We need to, we need to be prepared for battle. How do we do that? The Bible tells us how to do that. So we're going to be looking at the next few weeks how he operates. Part of our challenge as Christians living in this world is that we often struggle even knowing ourselves. Ever thought that? Part of the struggle we have is actually understanding our own motives, why we do certain things that we do. And the Word of God is there for that very purpose. It's as a, it's, we can use it as a mirror to reveal our own motives, intentions and desires. And there are too many Christians who don't understand their own motives where they're coming from, their own decisions. They make decisions based on fleshly lusts. They make decisions based on ignorance, not God's word. And then they find themselves in situations where they're, they're in trouble. To make the matters worse, they understand the enemy even less. So you can't understand yourself. And then on top of that, you don't understand an adversary who seeks to actively tear us down, to keep us defeated, to blind those around us from knowing the truth and also to infiltrate the church, cause division and break it apart. If we don't understand how he operates, we become very useless soldiers in a battle that's, that's raging around us. When Paul was speaking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, about forgiving a particular member of the church who had been caught sinning in, in 1 Corinthians. And he says to them, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He's, he, tell, he, he advises the Corinthians, confirm your love to him. Bring him back into the church. Don't put him through so much pain and heartache that he despairs of his own life. See, in the first one, in the first um, uh, letter to the Corinthians, he says, he mentions to them that this person caught in this particular sin, and most of us know what that particular sin was. He says to them, take him out of the church. If he continues as a sin, do not associate with him. He actually says to a point, he says, hand him over to Satan. But we find in the second letter, he's saying, confirm your love to him. This man had obviously repented of what he, of what he had done. And the Bible says, don't, don't continue to, to, to keep him away from you, lest you break his heart. And Paul says that for a reason. He says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let me ask you a question. How many Christians do you, do you know are not ignorant of his devices? Would you consider yourself to be fully aware of his devices this morning? Because I know even I struggle to understand his devices. But yet the Apostle Paul here says, we are not ignorant of his devices. So we are not to be ignorant of his devices. So my prayer for this series will be that that statement will be true for all of us by the time it's finished. We aren't to be ignorant of his devices. The devil. The devil. It's not a nice topic, is it? Even to, to mention it is actually not a nice topic. But let me first of all start off by telling you what the devil is not. Because there are plenty of misconceptions in the world, aren't there, about who the devil is and what he does and how he operates. Let me, let me begin by dispelling some of, the, some of the myths that we hear about the devil. First of all, the devil is not an excuse for believers to sin. Let me start right there. When you and I sin, we cannot point the finger at him and say, he made me do it. 
heard that one before. The devil is not an excuse at all for Christians to sin because that responsibility falls on our own shoulders. It's our own responsibility. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned by eating that fruit, fruit that they weren't, they weren't supposed to eat? Remember who Adam blamed? His wife. Do you remember who Eve blamed? The serpent. Okay. Now, each and every one of us know that they were not justified in blaming anyone else apart from themselves. And so it is now. We have no justification when we sin. We are not allowed to blame someone else, even the devil. Even if he did tempt us, and most of the times he did, does not tempt us, most of the time the Bible says that sin comes from inside. We have no excuse to blame anyone else, including the devil, for our sin. Yes, he will attack us, but our choices on what we do are ultimately our own to bear and to wear. Second point, the devil is not some guy in red pyjamas with a pitchfork and a pointy tail. Okay? As we'll see today, Satan is a powerful, powerful angel. And not ugly, and not red. We'll look at a description of him in the scripture. He doesn't look like that at all. That's a caricature. He's like Santa Claus. Okay? Do you think that Santa Claus was originally a big fat man with a with a wearing a red suit and and a long white beard? That wasn't the uh, that wasn't the original Santa Claus. The third point: Satan is not someone to be caricatured and to made a joke of. You might say, "Well, it's you know we should be making a joke of him." No, we should not be making a joke of him. He is no joke. He is the major or a major reason for the calamity that we see in this world. He is intelligent, resourceful, powerful, and on top of that, invisible. When you put those things together, he has many advantages over mankind. And he uses those advantages very well. He is not just some influence or, or, or man, man-made force. He is a person. He has uh, desires. He has goals, and to ignore him is to ask for trouble. He has plans, and he seeks to carry out those plans, and those plans have been going on for millennia. They're long-term plans. He doesn't have a three-year plan or a five-year plan. This guy has thousands of years of plans, and he carries them out strategically. He is not someone to be trifled with or to be made, or to be made fun of. Fourth, Satan is not the king of hell. He is not the keeper of hell. He is not Apollyon or Abaddon because he has never been cast into hell. He is not stuck there. Any person or being, being angelic or human, that is in hell is stuck in hell. They cannot get out. Yet the Bible says that the devil roams around like a roaring lion. That's because he's not in hell and he's never been there. But the Bible teaches us that one day he will be cast into that place. He will be held there for a time and then he will be cast into the lake of fire with every unbeliever that has chosen to follow him rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is not the keeper of hell. He does not, as a fifth point, send people or cast people into hell. The devil doesn't drag people down to hell or, or grab them and take them there. It is God who chooses to send people to hell. The people who populate hell are the ones who have inevitably rejected the message, the gospel. They've rejected God's provision to rescue them from hell, to rescue them from Satan and his devices. Luke chapter 12 verse 4 says, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Jesus was not talking about Satan. Jesus was talking about the Father who has the ability not only to kill but to cast into hell forever as well. He says, fear him. In the beginning of 
And the beginning of wisdom is fear of God. And finally, Satan and his demons should not be the focus of our lives. Should not be. Regardless of what I'm about to tell you in these next few weeks, I don't want you to dwell on this forever. Because the temptation will be that when we're speaking about spiritual warfare, that somehow we are to be involved directly in spiritual warfare. <coughs> Our brothers and sisters in the charismatic churches sometimes get themselves a little bit too involved with these things. We have not been called to kick in the gates of hell. That is not our calling. Our calling is not to be engaged and to try to, and try to break into the, the spiritual realm and get, get involved with demonic um, influences and to be casting out demons. and doing all. We have not been called to that. There is enough warfare and, and problems for us to be getting involved in that sort of stuff. And if you do get involved in that sort of stuff, you will be guaranteeing yourself some hard times. The focus of a Christian should be the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. We need to be aware of what's going on around us, but that should not be our focus. Okay. So what I'm about to, to share with you should not become the foundation of your life, as with anything else in the Bible. Okay. The Bible says that we are to be balanced in, in our lives. We are to live lives where we preach the whole gospel of God, not just one aspect of it. Okay, so remember not to get stuck with one particular aspect. So, people who get caught up too much with either conspiracy theories or end times or Genesis or whatever, as much as those things are good to know, don't get caught up with one particular thing in your life, because it will it will it's actually one of Satan's tactics to keep you distracted from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our focus. Okay? Satan can use even God's word to keep us distracted. We are not called to keep our eyes on Satan, but on Jesus Christ. And once again, spiritual warfare does not involve attacking the spiritual realm or working in the spiritual realm. We are not called to that. But all wise military leaders... And coaches never go into battle without carefully studying their opponent. True? The more they can know about their opponent, the more they can anticipate what to do and how to counteract their moves. They want to know how they operate. They want to know their character, their strengths, their weaknesses, their methods and their schemes and so on. To be effective against your enemy, you need to know your enemy so you can properly counter his attacks. For this reason alone, the doctrine of Satan is an important um, study. And I anticipate that there will be some opposition, not from you, but from him in the coming weeks. He does not like to be exposed. He does not like it when people reveal the way he works. So I expect some opposition. So please pray for me in the coming weeks. Because what I'll, what I'll be sharing with you is dangerous to him. If you and I become greater aware or have a greater ability to be able to counter his moves in our lives and the lives of those around us, and we see him working not just around us, in the lives of other people, we become very effective at being able to counter him. Why? Because we know what to pray for then. We don't fall into a hole every time he digs one in front of us. So as the Apostle Paul says, I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. We are not to be drawn away we are not to be not to be uh, conned by him because he can tr he is very manipulative and he's very intelligent but there is a focus in our lives and that is the simplicity that we find in Christ we, that's our, always our fallback position that's where our feet should be firmly planted 
because there is no changing him. He is the one who doesn't change and he is the one we rely on all the time. Okay, so we've gone through what he's not. Let's share some of the names. Did you know that the Bible calls Satan a number of different names? And do you know next to Jesus, Jesus has many names in the Bible. The next individual who has or is called a number of names is Satan. He has, has, he has, there's no other individual who has more names of Satan except for Jesus. Let's put it that way. Every name that he has reveals something else about him. Okay? So in the Bible, you find that the names that individuals have often give you an understanding of who they are or what they're like. So we're going to look at some of his names now. And we're going to, from those names, deduce a bit more about him. Turn to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 with me. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard loud voices saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The Hebrew word, the first word I want to look at, or the name that I want to look at is the word Satan, the name Satan. Satan literally means the adversary, the one who resists, or the accuser. It's translated Satan 18 times in the Old Testament and 36 times in the New Testament. It's probably the most, one of the most common names that he is given. And you'll notice from, the, from this passage over here, it says that he accused them, the accuser of our brethren in verse 10, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. He is the accuser. He is the one who constantly accuses believers before God, seeking to find justification for God to judge them. Satan is, is probably the, most, the name he's most commonly referred to as. The other term that we find in this particular passage is the term the devil. Diabolos or Diabolos. Interestingly enough, the term the devil is not found in the Old Testament. Not there at all. It's found 34 times in the New Testament. And the meaning of that one is the slanderer. The one who slanders. So the, the term to slander is the action of making a false spoken statement damaging a person's reputation. So he's in the business. That name literally means that he is in the business of slandering. Okay? Of spreading falsehood and lies about individuals to destroy their character. The devil has been a slanderer from the beginning. He slanders not only God's people, but God himself. From the beginning, he slandered God's character in the garden. Do you remember? When he approached Eve, he said to Eve, God doesn't want you to have that fruit because he knows the day you will have that, that you have that fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. He, so in other words, he was slandering his character by saying that he's holding something back from you because he doesn't want you to be like him. He also said, he was also slandering God's word, saying that God didn't really say this or that. Satan, the devil, is in the business of slandering. So he's in the business of accusing and, and, um, and resisting and being an adversary. And he's also in the business of slandering. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. I want to look at a, another name that he's called.
Matthew 12, 24. It says there, but when the Pharisees heard it, this is after Jesus had cast out some devils. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. This is the next name, Beelzebub. Beelzebub is a, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Jewish word that's been transliterated into a Greek word. But it's a Jewish name which literally means Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. And it was originally a pagan Philistine god that was worshipped in the city of Ekron during Old Testament times. That's where that, the first, this name first appeared. Okay, So it's, it's an old, old name for him. Now, the fact that it says he's Lord of the Flies okay, may be an indication that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. It may have connotations to that. And the fact that demons are able to fly around and the term flies is a bit of a, 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 a denigration on that. Many scholars believe that this term also meant Lord of the Filth. But it became a term that was synonymous with the devil. In Jesus' days it was commonly used. And it it has connotations of being dirty and vile. And to be the king of things that are vile, I mean, because flies hang around dead corpses. They hang around things that, that aren't necessarily good. Flies contaminate things. So the implication is that he is Lord of filth. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fifteen. It says there, and what and what concord do you have that? Second Corinthians six fifteen says, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now, what Belial? What, what is Belial? Belial is actually an old Hebrew name. In fact, it's, it's possibly so old, it was used before or pre-flood times. Belial appears 16 times in the Old Testament. And it's translated generally ungodliness. It's actually The same word is actually translated ungodliness in certain places. It's a very old pagan deity that's been used possibly that far back, even pre-flood. And it has a two possible meanings to it, which scholars have tried to deduce from the, the, the way it's put together and from its history. And it could either mean one who is so full of pride that he will not have anyone else over him. All right? So to be so full of pride, to be so full of yourself that you cannot stand to have someone telling you what to do. Or the other, the other connotation is someone who is utterly lawless. Both of those descriptions fit really well for Satan. He was so full of pride that he could not stand to have God over him. And he is the lawless one, the one who has rejected God's laws. Turn to Isaiah chapter 27 with me. Isaiah, chapter 27. Now there are three words that are used here for Satan, which are also found in other passages in the Bible. And it says in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord 
with his saw and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Satan is called the dragon, also in the New Testament and in other places, the serpent from the beginning, and Leviathan as well. Those three terms refer to him and his character. Those terms are synonymous with Satan. And they generally refer to his subtle and devious ways. And from the time he possessed a serpent in the Garden of Eden and used its subtlety to deceive Eve, we have seen him, or mankind has seen him, in this light. The term is used, the terms used over here seem to be all reptilian in nature, cold blooded, dangerous. Every one of them is a dangerous form of a reptile. So these terms are used for a dangerous individual who is very quiet at getting around. You don't hear him coming. But he is immensely dangerous. He is devious and subtle in his nature. Okay, so he can be called Leviathan, a dragon, or a serpent. Each of those are speaking about a similar thing. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. And we'll be looking at three different words that, that are used of him in the New Testament, which is really interesting. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Before we read this passage, I want to share something with you, which I, I, I find interesting. Satan in the New Testament is described in terms of rule and power. You don't get that in the Old Testament. Okay? It's interesting that most of these descriptions that we're about to read, hear about Satan over here come only in the New Testament. They're only revealed in the New. In each term, the implication is that he wields significant power and influence and authority in this world. And that is probably due to the fact that he rules over a third of the fallen angels and keeps captive the majority of the world's population at any one time. So the three words we'll be looking at now, where the scripture calls him a ruler, it calls him a prince, and it calls him a god. A ruler, a prince, and a god. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, to be able to blind the minds of the lost requires a significant amount of effort and power to do that. He does this to keep them captive to his own will rather than submit to God's. Imagine the type of effort that you'd have to expend to keep the majority of the world's population, 7 billion of them now, in complete darkness and bondage. That's a lot of power. That's a, that's a lot of work to be able to do that and to keep that going continually. The Bible says that if the gospel is hit, it's hit to them that are lost. And he keeps them lost. His purpose is to keep them that way because his desire is to blind their minds so they cannot see or understand what the gospel is all about. And it calls him the God of this world. Is it true? Yes, it is. He is the God of this world. This was written after Christ was resurrected, not before. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. 
And he's speaking here to Christians. He's speaking to those who have put their faith in Christ, have been born again, and now they're living in the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of God. And he says, and you, in verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1, and you hath he quickened, which means he's made you alive. You were dead. Okay, You were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the, disobe- in the, worketh in the children of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air is another name for Satan. He is a prince. The fact that he's called the prince of the power of the air demonstrates his influence and control in this world. The course of the world spoken of here is his course. Sirius says, well, we used to walk in that particular road. Well, that's the road that he's made. And most of the world happily walks down that road. Do you remember the Lord Jesus Christ says, there are only few that will choose the narrow gate and the narrow road, but there are many that choose the wide gate and the wide road. That is the course of this world, the course that he has designed and he keeps people corralled into that road. And it says that he is the prince of the power of the air. Oh, there's a specific reason for that. Remember when, uh, when America went into Iraq and the, the Iraq war went on, what was America trying to achieve first up? Air supremacy. They do that for a reason. If, you can't, if, the other, if the other guys can't get their planes into the air, you have complete dominance in the air, well, then you can do a lot. You can do a whole lot more. You see what's going on. You know what's going on. You can be dropping bombs all day, and they can barely touch you. He has supremacy in the air. He is the power of the air. He has influence and control in this world. And he works in the lives of the as the Bible says, he's, that spirit is working in the children of disobedience. All those who have rejected or will reject the gospel of Christ, he works within them. He is the prince of the power of the air. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. says there, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, and we know that, but we wrestle against principalities. Principalities. The term literally means princedoms. In other words, Territories or areas governed by a prince. And those prince, those principalities or those governed areas by these princes have great power, it says. It says they are rulers of the darkness of this world. They are rulers. They rule. What who do they rule? What do they rule? They have authority over many, many people. He has authority over many, many demons. And it says that he that they are enthroned in high places. People without realising it, if they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, are automatically enthroning Satan in their lives. They may think that they're actually following their own lives. They may think that they're number one. But by trying to place themselves as number one, they're automatically placing him number one because that's exactly what he wants. He wants them to follow their own course or to believe they're following their own course because in that way he has them firmly under his dominion and influence. The term here that I want you to take away with you is princedom. Princes governing territories. This world is governed by a number of princes and they're not people. They're not flesh and blood. These are beings all under satanic rule 
that have been set up in high places in the darkness and they rule from there. They cannot be seen, they're invisible and they wreak havoc in this world. In addition to these words, okay, so we've got him as the ruler, the prince and a god. We have him as Belial, Beelzebub, Satan and the devil. On top of this, there are many other names and we're not going to spend the rest of the, rest of the sermon with these names. But in addition to these, he's called the evil one in John 17 15. The father of lies and a murderer in John 8.44. He's called the roaring lion, which we've read in 1 Peter 5.8. He is the tempter in Matthew 4.3. He is a thief in John chapter 10, verse 10. Do we have a picture of his character now? From the names that he's given, we have an understanding of his nature and what he is like. He is opposed to God himself. He is an accuser a slanderer, a tempter, an adversary, a liar, a murderer. He is proud, arrogant, lawless, vile and evil. He wields great power and influence in this world. He uses subtlety and deception to achieve his purposes. Couple these with the fact that he is at least 6,000 years old and he is full of wisdom and beauty and he is full of himself and he hates mankind and he hates God. You have a very formidable foe. But was Satan always like this? That's a pretty bad description about someone, isn't it? Was he always like this? Now, why would God create such a being like this? And the answer is no to both of those questions. God did not create Satan like this. In fact, his name was not originally Satan or the devil, or Belial, or Beelzebub, or anything, any one of these names. His name was not originally that. He had another name before this. A different name. A name that didn't have connotations of evil and slander and accusation and, and temptation. In fact, he was a very different being. Satan, the Bible tells us, was created an angel. Actually, maybe even not even an angel. The Bible says he was created a cherub. Because the Bible doesn't necessarily call cherubs angels in the Bible. It'll be something to think about. Turn with me to Job, chapter 38, verse 4. Just so we get a bit of context. Job, chapter 38, verse 4. Before we read that passage, we need to understand something. Before God made man, he made the angels. Before God made man, he created the angels. The angels were created even as or before God laid the foundations of the world. And that's what you're going to read about here. Job 38.4 says, where was thou? Now this is, this is God speaking to Job. Okay, And he's saying to Job, where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You know, when God laid the very foundation of the world, the sons of God, which are all the angels, rejoiced. They shouted for joy when they saw God creating the world. Was Satan among them? Yeah, he was. He was shouting for joy as well. He was there. He was loyal. He was, he was what God had made him. While man was made on the sixth day of creation, the angels were already rejoicing when God laid the very foundation of the world. But the Bible also mentions that there are different classifications of angels. They're not all the same. Not every angel is the same angel. The Bible mentions angels in general. Okay, So the Lord used certain angels to deliver messengers. In fact, the term angel can be, can be, can be synonymous with the term messenger 
Okay? And we find the angel Gabriel in the Bible used numerous times of the Lord to deliver messages to people like Daniel, Zacharias and Mary. His primary role in the Bible seems to be to get through with a message and to deliver a message. Then there are angels which are called archangels in the Bible and Michael is one of those angels. It seems, he seems to be associated with protecting God's people and for military purposes. In other words, it seems like he's, he is some sort of a, a leader of the angelic uh, realm, of, which are the hosts of God. He's mentioned as the one who will lead the final battle against Satan's devils. And he also assisted Gabriel to get a message through to Daniel when the devil was resisting that message from getting through. Actually, Gabriel tells Daniel, the only, one who, the only reason I got through to you is because Michael came to assist me. After 21 days, I couldn't get through, but when Michael came, he got through. Then there are the seraphim. The seraphim seem to have a purpose of simply worshipping and adoring God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We'll look at a brief description of them then. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In this passage, Isaiah has a vision. And it says there in Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, that's with two, he covered his face. face. With twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These beings, these angels with six wings, had the job of actually proclaiming God's glory, of adoring him and glorifying him so that everyone else can hear. But the highest class of angel... Ones which apparently had immense beauty and power were the cherubim. Or the cherub, which is singular. They appear to be connected with God's dwelling place in the Old Testament. Their purpose seems to be to enhance the glory of God and to worship. But the cherubim are given a number of different roles in the Bible. They are, it looks as if, from, the, from the, the, the times that they're referred to, that their job is to protect the glory of God, His sovereignty and His holiness. And there are two specific mentions of cherubim. The first one is Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. If you want to turn there, they're referred all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had fallen, God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. Now to stop anyone else from coming back into the Garden and actually to, to take from the Tree of Life and they would live forever, God decides to do something. And it says there that in verse 24, So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. They were given a specific job to guard, to protect. They were not allowed to let anyone through or to come in. So we see from that specific instance, they had a job to guard, to protect. We also find an amazing description in Ezekiel chapter 10. So if you, if you want to take some time to read that, I don't have time here to go through it, but there's an amazing description of cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10, which describes them and their role in heaven and how they walk amongst 
fiery coals and wheels and things. Extraordinary uh, picture. Satan was a cherub, according to the Bible. So where his role was to protect, to guard the glory of God, he did the opposite and chose to enhance himself. We find that Satan rebelled against the Lord and fell from his position. And he wasn't known as Satan at that point. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12. We may find the original name that he was called here. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12. Satan was created one of the highest angels in God's realm. And there's something interesting that we might find out about him here. Now this is a prophecy against Satan. okay, And what will happen to him because of his fall and what he has done. It says in Isaiah 14.12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That name, Lucifer, is only ever mentioned once in the Bible. In fact, the King James is probably one of the only versions that actually mentions that name. The other ones tend to call him the Morning Star, I think it might be. But it's a literal name. And that name is made up of two, of two parts. Lucis, or Lucius, which means light, which we, we still use, and still is, is, a, is in a Latin, using a Latin term. Okay? And fur, which means to bear or to bring. So he's, that name literally means the bearer of light or the bringer of light. Name, not a bad name, really, was it? And he's also referred to as the son of the morning. So he's, he is the bringer of light. It's a bit like, you know, when, when, when sunrise starts to come up and you see light shining through? The connotation is that. He mean, the name means literally light bearer or the shining one. We also see from this passage that he's, we get the implication of why he fell from heaven. It says that his desire was to ultimately to become like God. He wanted to rule the angels. He wanted to sit on God's throne. He wanted to be God himself. He seems to have been brought down by his own pride in his own beauty and power. You might say, well, how do we know that? What makes us think that he was, you know, he liked, he liked himself so much he thought his own beauty and power? Because there's another description somewhere else about him. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 28. Turn with me there. As we're just about to, to finish up. <coughs> Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. Ezekiel 28, verse 12. And the Lord says here to Ezekiel, Son of man, take up a lamentation, which means take up lamenting, upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. 
Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Now, the king of Tyre was a normal man. But this passage is not speaking to a normal man, but to someone else. When God addressed the serpent in the Garden of Eden, when God pronounced judgment on the serpent, he was not talking to a snake. You understand that, don't you? He was not just talking to any old snake. He was addressing someone else. In both that case and in this case, he's referring to the same individual. He's referring to Satan. Satan was the one who inhabited both of those beings, both of those individuals. So we find here it says that you were full of wisdom and you were full of perfection in beauty. He was in the Garden of Eden and he doesn't put that in a negative, con in a negative context either. He puts it in a positive context. In other words, I created you perfect in beauty and wisdom. You walked in the Garden of Eden. You were walking in heaven. In other words, God allowed him originally to walk in the Garden of Eden. It says that he was covered. Whether that was his robe, whether that was him as a being, was covered in, in precious jewels. Whether that was an armour that he had on or a covering, it must have been absolutely beautiful. And then it mentions his pipes and his tabrets. This was a musical being. Pipes and tabrets are musical instruments. So he had also the ability to create beautiful music as well. Not a bad setup. Wisdom, beauty, talent, perfection. And what sort of a job did he have? Well, it says that he was a cherub that covereth. That word covereth means to protect, to defend, to hedge in, to seal. As I was reading this particular chapter, I wonder what it meant to protect. It says that he was walking in heaven. So maybe he was, yeah, protecting and defending God's honour. Maybe he was protecting the throne. Maybe his job was to do that. But then when it mentions that he was walking in the Garden of Eden, and it mentions it in a positive context, I wonder whether he was also called to protect these newly created beings that God had made. Maybe his job was to protect them, to guard the Garden of Eden, to make sure that nothing came in that wasn't, that wasn't meant to come in. Maybe his job was as a guard, Maybe that job was beneath him and his power and his beauty. <coughs> Maybe he looked at these individuals and he thought to himself, what am I doing with these people? What, what am I doing protecting these people? There's nothing like me. They don't have the sort of stuff that I have. They don't have, look at, look at, I'm not, a, I'm not just a guard. Maybe he looked at it in that way. Either way, it says he was perfect in his ways, perfect in beauty. Perfect in wisdom until iniquity was found in him. He defiled his ways and fell from his position in heaven. Next week I'm going to talk about his fall. What happened, how it happened and what were the implications of it. It's enough for us to know today that this is our adversary. This is our enemy. This is the one who stands against us because we have called ourselves the followers of Christ. And in calling ourselves the followers of Christ and saying that we have chosen him, it puts us in a very interesting position. It places us in direct opposition to him. You see, everyone else in the world is blinded by him. They're no threat to him. Not a problem for him. But when someone steps out of that darkness and sees the light and then chooses to follow Christ as Saviour, they become a threat to him. So his job is either 
to make you completely immobilized, to stop you from, from doing what you're meant to be doing. Because he can't take away our salvation, but he can, he can make us useless. He can keep us distracted. This is our adversary. He is still full of wisdom. And he's had 6,000 extra years to gain more of it. He still puts on a pretty good show of beauty when he needs to. He's not ugly, as most people caricature him like. He's still the same angel that he was before. He still looks the same. We need to understand that much of this world has been deceived by him and that this world is generally living in darkness. The ones who have the light have a responsibility not only to resist him, but to share that light with others. The problem is that light, when it's revealed, reveals our position and reveals us, doesn't it? The more you reveal, the more you walk in the light, the more you reflect the glory of God in this world, the more visible you become. Not just to the people of this world, but to the angelic realm in this world. We are those people who have a job to do. Where Lucifer failed in his role to protect and be the bearer of light, we can't fail in this. We have been called to bear the light. We have been called to bring this light. We have this light within us. Not because of anything we are or what we've done. This light is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And if we choose to follow him, we have an obligation to share that light with them. We cannot fail. The light we bear is not our own. But it's the light that the world desperately needs to see. We have a responsibility to walk in his light and to bring his light to the world. And as impressive as the devil sounds in scripture, as powerful and, 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 and wise and whatever, we need to understand one thing in this. He's already lost the war. He may win battles from time to time, but he has lost the war. When Christ died for the sins of the world and he rose again on that third day, he was done for and he knows it. His judgment, his final judgment hasn't been handed down yet. He hasn't been cast into that prison yet. But he knows his time will come. John tells us, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember always, never you never need to be afraid of Satan. You never need to fear him, his demonic realm, or anyone else. The Bible says, fear no man and fear no angel because greater is he that is inside us now who lives within us than he that is in the world and that's the devil. The devil has no match for Jesus Christ. The devil is a created being and Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one who created the devil and, G and, and the devil is no match for God. But this morning, we, I want you to take this question away with you. Have you been deceived by the devil? Is he deceiving you one way or the other? Is he causing you to focus on something that you're not meant to be focusing on? Is he causing you to distract you into sin that is causing you to not bear the light to this world? Do you walk in the light? As, as the Lord is in the light. And if you're not, if you're sleeping in the shade, then the devil has you where he wants you. If you're living in the darkness, if you're cowering back in the darkness again because of your own sin, that's where he wants you to be. Have you been deceived by Satan this morning? In addition, if you choose to leave here this morning knowing that Jesus is the saviour of this world and you choose not to follow him, then you've allowed Satan to win another battle in your life. Because this is a battleground this morning. This is a battleground. 
And the battle is for your heart. And God wants all of your heart. He doesn't want part of it. He wants all of your heart. And the devil will distract you in every possible way so that you will not give it. So this morning, if Christ doesn't have your heart, who does? Don't leave here today. If you don't know if you're saved, do not leave here today. Because the devil wants to keep you in darkness as long as he possibly can. And this morning, if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, don't block him out. Come to the Lord. Repent of sin. Understand where you are and, and the difficult position you're in. Because he may win this battle this morning and you may find yourself dead in a day. And then the battle for your soul and the war for your soul will be over. <coughs> Don't let Satan win another battle in your life this morning. Choose Christ. Choose to live for him. And don't fear Satan. Live for the Lord and you will have victory in your life. My prayer is that we become stronger in the faith in these next few weeks. And that we will learn how to counteract some of these devices in our lives. God bless you. Thank you.